You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here on the Westwood One Network at CRTV. Our second podcast on March 5th. How about it? We have a government shutdown today, so I'm going to work twice as hard. And indeed, we do have a government shutdown with the judiciary shutting down our system of governance. Today was the day that President Trump promised 13 months into his presidency to end one of the most unlawful acts, this DACA amnesty, one of the most unlawful acts of all time by an executive. And the courts are saying, no, you must continue. And our body politic, including conservatives, seem fine with it. So watch for our second article today on that, our government shutdown. The reason why we have a second podcast today is I promise you guys we would continue our series of Meet the Candidates to comb the districts and states of this nation to try to find somebody giving voice to our narrative who won't just be a vote but a voice for what we believe in. And it's pretty hard to find. It's pretty hard to find someone who understands the policy issues understands the politics, understands the strategies, um, is well-grounded philosophically in the Constitution, but also in the current issues, and is willing to actually fight for it and not come up and, you know, two, two days after being elected, you never hear from him, and he sits in the Witness Protection Program. So today, in honor of my wife's birthday, who my wife is a Virginian, grew up in Richmond, and sadly saw her state slip away and become a blue state, we will have a candidate from Virginia on, Nick Friedis. And before we introduce our guest, I just want to frame this by reading the first paragraph of my first column after Parkland on the gun issue. Substance is not the strong suit of the left. Leftists tend to isolate one component of a policy issue, ignore the broader context, history, and consequences of the larger issue, and use and abuse a national tragedy to exploit their agenda. Using political human shields is just the cherry on top. This is why they never want to discuss the broader history of gun violence and gun laws in America, but instead keep a myopic focus on school shootings while hiding behind the victims. Now, the second half of that is that we don't have a Republican Party or much of a conservative movement providing the counter-narrative, counter-punching Um, discussing our issues on the broader gun issues, the broader cultural violence issues, sanctuary cities, the broader crime issue in places like Baltimore that have actually tried many of the things they're advocating for. And we wonder, where is anyone in Washington pushing this narrative? There's an omnibus bill coming up, and Republicans control all three branches, and all we hear is what the Democrats may or may not demand on amnesty and guns, not on what Republicans are demanding in their own budget bill. So clearly we need reinforcements to the 2.4 conservatives we have in the Senate. So with us today, we have Nick Freitas, a candidate who's running for Senate in Virginia. Um, Very impressive resume. currently sits in the Virginia House of Delegates, and he's in his second term. 
and he is a veteran um, who served in the 82nd Airborne and the Green Berets Special Forces. The reason why we're bringing him on today, to be clear, we always wanted to bring him on. Um, the reason we're bringing him on specifically today is because he's now gained national attention, which is a good thing, because of the speech he gave to give that counter-narrative on the floor of the House of Delegates in Richmond, Virginia, and you know, basically noting how the left is using political human shields to hide behind the intellectual firepower that they do not have and call us, you know, compare us to Nazis, compare us to segregationists, and he finally had enough and called a spade a spade, and they're going nuts. So we decided to have him on, and with no further ado, I want you all to hear from our guests. Hey, Nick, how are you doing? Doing well, Daniel. Thank you for having me on. Really happy you're able to join us. I know you were on Fox and Friends early t- earlier today um, talking about this speech. Let's start off with this issue, because that's in the news now, and then we'll kind of uh, build up your, you know, your candidacy, what you're hoping to do, what you feel is lacking in the Republican Party. Um, but how exactly did you get into this debate with Democrats in the legislature with guns? And how do you feel it ties in to what we were just talking about, how on a federal level, nobody is really giving your speech on the House or Senate floor? Well, I, I think it, it really started because I said on the, um, the subcommittee on militia, police and public safety in the Virginia General Assembly, and we hear all of the anti-gun bills. And we had about 32 this, this session, and we, um, we defeated all of them. And there was some very moving testimony, but what it really came down to was the bills proposed were not going to actually address the key issues um, of the various shootings that we've seen. And not to mention the fact there were some pretty significant second and third order effects, some pretty significant unintended consequences with that legislation. And, and what I noticed as we were going through this, we had some heated discussions in subcommittee, and then there were some very heated floor speeches. And more and more, it became one of these things where it was this false dilemma fallacy. It was this either or proposition. Either you're going to get the Second Amendment or you're going to uh, significantly uh, infringe on someone's uh, a law by incident ability to own a firearm, or you don't care about kids. You don't care about gun violence. Um, we had delegates say things like, if you don't vote for this bill, this is purely because you want guns in the hands of terrorists and criminals and you don't care. Um, I had to remind one delegate that, you know, it was a former Green Beret with two combat tours in Iraq. I knew a little bit more about combating terrorists than he did as a radio personality. Um, but it, it just, I just got to the point where I'd had enough. And so I got up and I gave a, a speech about what an open and honest debate would look like, because they kept saying they wanted an open and honest debate, but I didn't see a great deal of evidence for that based off of their comments or their actions. And so I, I, I went through several different uh, things that we should be looking at if we're serious about this. And it has everything to do with social issues, economic issues. It has to do with uh the breakdown of the family, and how are we going to address all these things combined? Plus, how are we going to look at how gun control legislation has worked in the past? Has it has it actually achieved the desired results? And then finally, I I, I talked about how we need to truly respect that over a hundred thousand, anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand, depending on what numbers you use. Law-abiding citizens use a firearm to defend themselves in this country every year. And so that's 100,000 to 500,000 
burglaries, thefts, assaults, batteries, rapes, murders that don't take place because a law-abiding citizen have the means to defend themselves. And it's on their behalf that we speak. And that's the, that's the portion that the media wants to ignore. And then finally, when uh, one, of the, one of the Democrat delegates uh, compared us to segregationists, I just set the record straight on which parties had supported what throughout history. And uh, a lot of my colleagues found a, lot, a great deal of offense with that. But I, I find it interesting that they're very ready to take offense when I point out the actual history of the Democratic Party, but they don't seem to think that we should take any offense when they compare us to segregationists, Nazis. Um, to be in, in favor of terrorists uh, on, on some level. So that was what the floor speech was about. I actually thought it was fairly measured, but uh, but many of my colleagues in the House were very frustrated with it, and they, they certainly aired that frustration today on the House floor. When you say colleagues, do you mean also Republicans or only Democrats? No, it was only Democrats. I, most of my Republican colleagues were, were very supportive. Um, but it's it's also one of these things where when the Democrats get offended, they think that the debate oftentimes should shut down. And they're not all like that. I had one Democrat delegate who I'm, I think is a great guy come by my office, and he just wanted to, he wanted to get an idea of what my perspective was. And once I was able to explain my perspective and he was able to explain his, it, it doesn't mean that we agreed on everything, but there was, a, there was a lot more mutual understanding. And that's the sort of conversation we should be having. But we can't have that as long as Democrats feel that they can insult us with impunity, that they can rely on what I call an ambulance-chasing approach to legislation, where they have a particular philosophical outcome that they want, they find a tragedy that is superficially plausible, and then they use that in order to push whatever their agenda is. And that's not the way that we're supposed to be making public policy. And, and that in itself is a very important point that I think is, you know, goes beyond any of the issues, their success at driving the narrative. The GOP are kind of like balloons in the wind. And, you know, maybe maybe where you are, they're stronger and standing with you. But I'm pretty sure if you gave that speech, uh, you know, if you were uh, a senator right now and you gave that speech, um, I don't know if it would be so well received even among Republicans. Uh, all I'm seeing right now, and I think, you know, this is really where you can maybe transition to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, if you are in D.C. right now, same person, same message mm -hmm. with this issue becoming very prominent, because, of course, the only issue that's prominent is whatever the Democrats and the media say it should be prominent. So, again, and you talk about tragedies. This is why. Um, you know, a three-year-old was killed in Winston-Salem while traveling in an ambulance by an illegal alien DUI um, who was released by a sanctuary city. But, you know, no one even knows about that. We don't make that a national issue because Republicans don't have a narrative. If you are there right now, um, there is almost no legislation being introduced on our side of this issue in the Senate. It's all a matter of how much we're going to expand background checks. The Cornyn bill, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. We had Thomas Massey, the head of the Second Amendment caucus on our show last week, discussing how it exacerbates the um, problems with the VA stripping seniors of their rights without due process and nothing to address the broader issue. What would you be what would your message and your strategy be right now, especially with the budget bill coming up? Well, I think first of all, from just from a, a messaging standpoint, we, we need to we need to be pointing out that there's two different competing philosophies philosophies here. One is a philosophy of control, and the other is a philosophy of individual liberty. And the philosophy of control is the one that Democrats constantly pitch to us, which essentially says that if we hand over more of our responsibilities, if we hand over more of our liberty, more of our money, more of our freedoms over to government, then government will take care of us. 
Well, I think it's fair for us to ask, okay, which countries, which states, which cities have actually applied that philosophy, have been, have been the most loyal to that particular philosophy, and what has the result been? And, and when I see that on an international level, I see countries like Venezuela. When I see it on a domestic level, I see cities like Detroit. So the, the entire narrative of just give us more control and we'll make it all better is ridiculous. And I, we need to attack that at a core philosophical uh, standpoint, not just individual policy decisions. It's one of the things that it's one of the reasons why our policy debates don't go the way we think they should. It's because ultimately we've given in to the less narrative when it comes to the philosophy piece. And then we just try to make it better within their paradigm. No, you challenge them at the fundamental level. Why is it that they believe that if they have more control, if they can micromanage their lives, they'll do a better job? Because they certainly haven't in any place it's been tried. The other side of that, too, is, is once you explain our philosophy, which it is, it goes back to the whole idea of we have a passion and a love for the individual. And when government protects your right to live your life the way you want, and you live your life with a, with a degree of personal responsibility, and you work together with other people in voluntary cooperation, that's where you actually get really unique and effective solutions. One of the biggest problems I have with this entire narrative is everything, everybody is looking to government and saying, well, what are you going to do? And it doesn't mean that government doesn't have a role to play, but it's this, this idea that we are all frozen in time and can't think of anything that we could possibly do ourselves or with other parents or with the school system uh, right there at our local level. What are the different solutions that we could be coming up with? There was one student that came up with a device that would uh, prevent someone from being able to get into a door that was easy to apply, easy to make, because he didn't look at it as, well, I'm going to wait around for the government to tell me what to do next. He looked at it as, what can I do with my time my talents in order to improve this situation. And when we get people thinking in that mentality again, it is amazing. It is amazing the innovation that we see in dealing with complex problems. And that's the sort of mindset that we need on an individual level. When it comes to the government side, yes, there's things that we can do with respect to moving, removing certain barriers, certain regulations that would actually prevent schools from being able to provide for their own protection. But I think one of the other things that we need to address, and this is a far more complex argument, right? I understand that it doesn't address the immediate concern that people have with what do we do with this particular school shooting, but we do need to look on, on how different government programs have led, have, I think, systematically to the disintegration of the family, mm. because we see a huge uptick uh, starting in, in the 60s. It has, it's not because I mean, the civil rights was great. Civil rights is, it was one of the best things to come out of the 60s. But the welfare state, which, which created a situation where all of a sudden it was people were more dependent on government than they were their mother, their father, their, their grandparents, that whole family unit that was such an important structure and holding society together and holding people accountable within that family unit started to disintegrate drastically starting in the 60s and 70s. So we, we need to look at, we need to answer those questions. I think when it comes to individual questions of school security, we also need to respect that there's a certain degree of federalism involved here, right? We, we need to allow states to come up with solutions that work best for their state. And insofar as there is a federal role, um, I, you know, there, there could be you know, again, with the background checks, the thing that I'm, I'm skeptical of is that we get into this place where background checks become registration, or we start putting people on lists where they've never been afforded any due process of law, and it ends up becoming a mechanism whereby anti-gun judges or anti-gun lawyers now have this now have this separate separate uh, process outside of due process in order to prevent people from having guns. Period. So. 
again, part of this is a mentality. Instead of constantly looking to a legislator to try to solve a problem through a law, start looking at, okay, what can we do in our community in order to identify these problems, in order to identify root causes, in order to provide for physical security, because most of the solutions for this lay right there in the community itself. It's not Washington, D.C. And politicians have this this desire to run around with with their favorite bill and say, well, this is what's going to solve it all. Aren't I a great guy? No, the greatest thing you can do sometimes is tell a community that, yes, this is troubling, but you need to let us know what can you do at the local level. And then there may be a role for the state to come in to assist, for the federal government to come in to assist. But the solutions have got to be organic. Exactly. Make localism great again. And, uh, you know, that was my first reaction when I heard about Parkland. I actually refused to do radio interviews for for two days because I felt, you know, I'm I'm a federal political guy. I didn't feel this was a federal political issue. Fundamentally, I mean, you make decisions about what you want to do in terms of school security um, at a local level. But then, you know, as they politicized it, we started to learn more about this. And you're right. Most things, the solution is not a federal level, but often you find that the arsonist is really the firefighter dressing up as the firefighter and often it's caused at a federal level so one of the things we found recently um is that they had this promise program in broward county and i don't know you know what you have in virginia but many other states here where i am in maryland um they've taken a lot of money from these common core style either department of education department of justice grants where they incentivize them, not like they did in the 90s, to lock up more people, but to arrest as few people, particularly juveniles, as possible, which could very well be why um, 45 calls and complaints about uh, Nicholas Cruz were ignored. And yet they want to make this a gun issue. And yeah. I, I was joking around with people. If you don't identify and arrest the bad behavior to begin with, you're not going to have any information in, in the NICS system to ban the gun from the bad guy. Well, and they, and they have two other problems that, that are pretty significant with their argument. One is they have this belief that, well, if we just ban the gun, well, then the guy won't get it anymore. Okay, well, first of all, that's not the case, and that's not the case for a variety of reasons. One, even if you ban guns tomorrow, there's still 350 million guns in the United States. And even if you try to ban guns tomorrow, let's say you stole all of those from from lawful uh, citizens. Well, guess what? The same people that don't want to deal with our porous border, (laughs) you create a black market for firearms, believe me, the, the supply will reach the demand. So this this idea that if you just suddenly ban guns, well, then all of a sudden you've gotten rid of gun violence is, is not something I buy. But secondly, the other problem is, is let's say somehow magically you could uh, ban guns altogether. It does not take a great deal of creativity to see how one of these mass shooters would simply use a different mechanism in order to achieve mass casualties. And that's why the emphasis has to be on how do we identify people that are going to do something like this early on. So there, there's the proactive measure of find, find the behavior. Do the analysis. When, when certain indicators are met, additional investigation is required. That's, that's the proactive side. The, the defensive side is, okay, when we look at a school or when we look at a particular site, and we know that they always target gun-free zones, uh, I would say for obvious reasons, we have to look at, okay, let's take an honest analysis of how do we make this site a harder target? Because most of these people, they're not looking for a fight. 
They're not looking for a fight. They're looking for the easiest target possible with the most sensationalism possible. And there are a number of ways that we can address those issues, which I would hope would be entirely bipartisan. But we're not going to be able to get to those solutions that we all agree on if the left uses every single opportunity as a way to, again, a full-on assault on the Second Amendment. And, and blaming an object for an action is just absurd. And it really covers up the underlying problems that we have to address if we're serious about making sure that our kids and our citizens are safer. Well, let, let the criminals out of jail and put the, put the bump stocks in jail. <laughs> Evidently, that's going <laughs> to solve the problem. You, know, you, talk about Venezuela, you talk about Venezuela, um, but you just go 100 miles. I believe I'm about 100 miles north of you um, in the city of Baltimore. So in, in October 2013, they enacted the toughest gun law in America. You talk about background checks to purchase a gun. Forget about that. You had to, own, you had, you had to get a license. To just own a gun now, you, not not to carry. You can't carry here. Um, very few people can. Uh, but just to purchase, to own a gun in your home, any handgun, not an AR-15, just any semi-auto, revolver, anything, you got to get a license. It could be a two-month process with training um, and everything. You're treated like a criminal. Um, and yet, and yet, within the years, we plotted on a graph, Baltimore became the murder capital per capita of the entire country. And that is yeah. the type of thing they do not want to discuss. And I'm not really hearing that asserted in uh, the, you know, the president's meeting that he had last week or, you know, pretty much anyone on, on either side. So, um, you know, we're definitely, well, I had, sure. Well, no, and, and again, it goes, it goes back to the, when, when you have this, when you, when you have this almost obsessive, myopic uh, view of, of only the object only, the, the object in this case being the firearm, you, you completely ignore everything around it. You completely ignore all the other factors, all the other indicators which, which make a particular violent act possible or probable. And, and, and again, I think it's distracting. It, it, I'm, not only, I'm not only opposing so much of this legislation because I do have an, an incredibly high regard for the Second Amendment and its purpose which is to allow people the ability or to recognize their God-given ability to be able to provide for their own self-defense. I also oppose the legislation because I think it completely takes the eye off the ball with respect Bingo. to what the true problems are. Amen. And so, and so this isn't just bad policy because it's not about bad, bad policy because of the famous liberty trade-off, right? The understanding that sure. we accept certain things in order for people to be free, right? It's not just that argument. It's like, no, even if we were willing to shelve that argument, which I'm not, but even if we were willing to shelve that argument, I still want to come around to their way of thinking with respect to getting rid of guns, because I don't think it does a good job of addressing the societal conditions which create people like this, exactly. right? And I'm not blaming society, right? I, I believe people are responsible for their individual actions, but I think we can look at various public policy decisions that we've made that have, that have adverse effects. And, and until we're really serious about once again recognizing that, guess what? When government steps outside of its proper boundaries and limitations, and it tries to replace the mother, and it tries to replace the father, and it tries to replace the, the pastor, priest, or rabbi. All of a sudden, we, we wind up in a situation when our, when our kids go to schools where they're taught moral relativism. I, I don't see why we're surprised when all of a sudden society is producing students now that have never had, you know, two parents in the home. Uh, you know, we have young men that don't have never had a positive male role model in their life. They're, they're growing up in a gang environment because they're searching for a, a family that's essentially been denied them. Um, 
they, they find their way into massive amounts of, of violence, drugs, and everything else. And then they get to a point where either out of um, just complete desperation or frustration or whatever it is, you have a, you have a student lashing out uh, in this kind of environment. I, I like to point out to people, we have had, you know, in, in the, gosh, in the early 20th century, you could walk into a store and buy a submachine gun without any paperwork, right? We didn't have school shootings then. School shootings is a new phenomenon. Gun ownership is not a new phenomenon in the United States. School shootings are. Most of it, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite old enough to remember the days where you just threw the shotgun on the back of your pickup truck and drove it to school because it was hunting season. But I'm only about five years removed from that. Sure. And we didn't have school shootings there. Why? Well, because the mentality of society in the country was much different. And until we can start looking at that honestly and openly, we're going to continue to run into situations where whether it's a gun or whether it's a car or whether it's something else, we're going to find people that think it's perfectly acceptable to target innocent people in mass uh, for destruction, for death. And I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not willing to run up here as a legislator and say, oh, well, if you just give me more control over your guns, we'll fix it. I think that's disingenuous. Wow, Nick. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. I really want to move on to other issues, but I just, I just want to reiterate, you pulled out a brilliant point here that it's not just that they're wrong. It's not just it's not going to solve the problem. It's not just the fact that it's a violation of the Second Amendment, but it's downright offensive. A lot, a lot of friends of mine have come over to me and said, hey, Daniel, why don't you just throw them a bone? Okay, they want to ban bump stocks. Look, you and I both know it's BS, but fine, give them the stupid bump stocks. But that's the point. What you're saying is it's, it's offensive because it distracts. I mean, you yeah. want to ban the bump stocks, fine, whatever. But that's not the point. You're distracting from the cultural problem, the broader problem, and you know the open borders problem, the sanctuary problem, the MS-13 problem. And you know we can make this much broader to issues that kill a lot more people that we don't seem to care about. But you know, uh, ingratiate ourselves to the to the voters with bump stocks. So I mean, to move on to one of those issues, and I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, again, talk about the arsonist being the firefighter. Um, talk about dependency and taking um, the father figure out of the home. I want to move on to Obamacare, healthcare, Medicaid. This is the other video I saw from you, a speech you gave on the Medicaid expansion. It looms large um, in the state of Virginia, a non-Medicaid expansion state now um, trying to expand Medicaid. And this issue, more than anything, I mean, you're running for a federal office. And if there's any issue that Republicans clearly betrayed their promise to voters, it was on repeal of Obamacare. But I like what you said before. You have to look philosophically. It's not just, oh, they didn't repeal Obamacare. They fundamentally do not have an understanding or a narrative on what healthcare looks like, who broke it, and what we need to do to fix it. Um, Aside from Obamacare, aside from the whole discussion of, of Obamacare, just on the supply side, um, I'm going to let you run with this on Medicaid. I want to get your thoughts on what you want to do on healthcare in Washington. But one thing that just hoses me, I wrote an article on it recently. They talk about the opioid crisis in a vacuum, it's a similar thing, school shootings, Don't, not giving any context of what exactly it is and isn't, where does it come from and who caused it. And aside from the fact that 78% of the overdoses are not prescriptions, they're heroin and fentanyl, which there's now a tremendous amount of evidence that came in after DACA. Um, 
the Central American invasion with 300,000 potential drug mules that really resupplied both MS-13 and the drug gangs. There's a great um, congressional hearing at the Judiciary Subcommittee on this. Uh, some sheriffs came in to testify how sanctuary cities prevent them from busting them up because they're all foreign nationals, the ones who run this. Anyway, that's the 78%. On the 22% prescription side, I just want to read to you some statistics and get your um, get your comments on a both on a state level now that Virginia is the bet, you know number one battleground on Medicaid expansion and also as a candidate for federal office. According to a new report from the Senate Homeland Security Government Accountability Committee, Medicaid has contributed to the nation's opioid epidemic by establishing a series of incentives that make it enormously profitable to abuse and sell dangerous drugs. The report found that drug overdose deaths per 1 million people are rising nearly twice as fast in expansion states as non-expansion states. And just to give one example, in um, Clay County, Kentucky, for instance, the expansion of Medicaid through the ACA increased the percentage of Clay County residents with Medicaid and gave more of them access to free prescription drugs, including pain pills. It expanded the number of people in that county or percentage of people in that county from 35% to 60% of the entire county of Clay County's yeah. on Medicaid in just three years. Um, over yeah. the same p- period of time, the use of um, OxyContin has risen while the waiting list for local inpatient drug treatment facilities has grown more than 50%. Why don't we hear this narrative in Washington? Well, I think, I think so we, we certainly don't hear it enough, but the other problem too is I think we, when we start to get into certain numbers, um, the, the example you just gave was very good. That's easy for people to digest, easy for people to understand. Sometimes we go for the more sensational numbers where we say, you know, we spent half a trillion dollars a year in this country and, you know, we're not getting good results. So, you know, recent studies of MIT, you know, demonstrate that only 20 to 40 cents of every dollar actually gets to an intended user, mad fraud, fraud waste and abuse. And, and people have gotten so used to hearing that about government programs, it doesn't even phase them anymore at this point it's just like well i need to get something and the and that and that's unfortunately where we're at and, and i like to i always like to ask people a question i'll say okay how many of you in your how many of you in this room when i'm talking to an audience how many of you have a smartphone everyone's got a smartphone it's okay how many of you think that your smartphone will be better quality and more affordable in two years everyone raises their hand i said how many of you feel that way about healthcare? nobody raises their hand i said okay Google, Samsung, Apple, these are the people that are, are running the smartphone industry. The government is the one that is running your, your medical care. Why should we be surprised that a room full of politicians and bureaucrats who, A, and in my opinion, have no constitutional authority to manage health care, and B, certainly have no special expertise to manage the health care for millions of Americans, why are we surprised when they do a one-size-fits-all Washington, D.C. imposed solution that it doesn't work? Right. We, we, would you want would you want the federal government running your grocery store? Would you want the federal government running cell phone operations? You know, nobody wants that. And everybody intuitively understands, oh, that would be horrible. But then they say, oh, but health care is different. No, it isn't. <laughs> At a fundamental level, it really isn't. It is a it is a series of commodities and services that people want. It is in high demand. And anytime you have something in high demand. All right, supply always rises up in order to meet that demand, and that's where you get that upward pressure on quality and your downward pressure on prices. And so sometimes it's as simple as telling people, would you rather a room full of politicians and bureaucrats manage your health care plan, or would you rather Samsung, Apple, 
and um, and Google, you know, and Facebook all argue it out for the best one to actually provide the newest and latest innovations. Which one do you think would be more innovative and more responsive to your needs? Nobody thinks the government would be. But the government has done a very, very good job of creating dependency. And when you feel dependent, you are scared to try something else. You are scared of losing that. And that's where we're at right now within the healthcare debate. And really what we need to get people to do is understand that they have been betrayed. They have been duped. You have been convinced that if, if only the government was in charge of this, and in all of a sudden it makes you more and more dependent on the politicians who should be working for you, but now you find yourself working for them. And you can see it all throughout the healthcare industry in the least regulated, most competitive environments. You see massive innovation. You see falling prices. LASIK eye surgery was $2,500 per eye five years ago. Now it's under $500 per eye. You see it as the same thing with a lot of elective surgeries. So th this whole idea that, that the marketplace can't provide quality, affordable healthcare is a complete myth. It does it everywhere it's allowed to. Everywhere so now where you have a consumer, yeah. except in most yeah. healthcare, the consumer is not the consumer. It's government directly no. or indirectly. Which, again, is, is a policy that goes all the way back to the 30s when, when we were taxing people's income at a rate of 90 percent, when we put businesses in a position where the only way they could attract high-level employers was providing health care benefits. And, and that's, here's another example that I like to use with people. I say, we use health insurance unlike we use insurance in any other industry. If your car insurance was run like health insurance, your car insurance would cost you $1,000 a month. And insurance would pay for your gas. And insurance would pay for your windshield wiper fluid. And, you know, and if the car came up to the... Um, to the gas station and they had to give gas to the person regardless of their ability to pay, well, what do you think it would do to your dollar per gallon when you pulled up and you could pay? So it, it's it's all about but, but Nick, getting people to understand. Yeah. Nick, I, sorry to interrupt there. It's worse than that. There's two elements. A lot of people make the analogy to other um, insurance, other forms of insur insurance, homeowners or auto insurance, and they note the fact that, you know, that's just for a certain, you know, out of a catastrophic event, you get into a car crash, but you don't pay for regular maintenance. And then look, the, you know, the prices are relatively reasonable. Um, that's one thing. The second step is the price fixing. Imagine if yeah. we empowered, if government used programs to shovel money to all of the vendors and third and fourth party vendors taking the yeah. consumer buying power away from the consumer and then allowing them to price fix. And then you don't even have price transparency. So that that's the problem in healthcare. Um, you know, you mentioned something about grocery stores. Imagine if government ran them. You know, I always tell people, and, and I think this will be your homework assignment from the conservative conscience to read my article on, on Medicaid reform, what I'm looking to do on it. And part of what I think is so important here for candidates to run on is that if we would just run Medicaid like food stamps, we, yes. it would be so much better. And, and and this is a conservative saying that, look, I'm not addressing the yeah. dependency and the number of people and the cost. I'm, I, I worked out the numbers and said, look, OK, Democrats, you want 73 million people on Medicaid, 560 billion combined federal state costs. Fine. Let's shake on it. You could have it. But if we would take that money and you take the per dollar amount we give to the healthy people – um, the people with disabilities, they're, they're broken down by CMS, different ratios, and you would give it to them to purchase health sharing ministries, any form of insurance, and I don't even want to call it insurance, um, you know, no, hedge against just, just risk. be able to buy health care. <laughs> Whatever you want, but, a but, mixture, yeah. mixture of DPC, yeah. they would be able to have everything covered 
and you we would have single payer in America from the consumer to the provider. And if yeah. and if you can't provide for yourself, so fine, we'll give you the freaking money like food stamps, and you go into the food store and you purchase it. We have a lot of complaints about food stamps, but one of the things we don't have is that it distorts the food market, that it price fixes yeah. the consumer out of oblivion. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of this principle. I'm working on with- so I, actually, sure. so I actually made the exact same argument, but for education. And, and the way I made the argument is I said, when the government wanted to help hungry people, it didn't open up 10,000 government grocery stores and make you shop in one based off of your zip code. It gave you a voucher for food and then allowed the market to meet the demand. I said, so if, if you want to accept the government role in education, okay, then let's accept this government role in education. We'll accept, federal, we'll accept some level of government subsidization, but we don't require any federal administration. We don't require any government administration. The marketplace can meet the demand. If you want to make sure that, that a poor person may normally not be able to have access to you know, food, you give them a food stamp. Education, well, great, give them a voucher for education. Healthcare, great, give them a voucher for education or for uh, healthcare. And so again, now, are, are there still some philosophical problems with that? Are there still some sure. underlying economic problems with that? Yes. But it would be significantly preferable than to this, this crazy system where the government tries to micromanage anything. And then the thing that I love is when people say, well, we need this government regulation. Otherwise, you know, these big corporations will get away with, you know, stuff. and I look, I'm like, are you out of your mind? Who do you think writes that legislation? <laughs> the, the moment, the moment, certain the moment certain entities can no longer for the government invading into the system, they're the first ones at the trough to show up with a piece of legislation and a big campaign contribution in order to manipulate the system in their favor. There was no million man, poor man's march. Um, you know, when we were debating Medicaid expansion, Obamacare last spring and last summer, yeah. it was all the cartel, the, the AMA, oh, the yeah. AHA, and the insurance cartel. And a lot of people don't realize 74% of all of Medicaid in this country is the cartel. It's all oh, yeah. administered by Anthem and United Health and these same people. So they take all that consumer buying power that the government now hands them. And it hurts all of us. It's not just the fact that there's a lot of dependency and they get poor quality care, frankly. Um, it was, we all languish from the pricing. You know, one thing that I would love to see you address if you go up there to Washington, I can't find anyone to speak to this, are facility fees. The government yeah. uses the boot of Medicaid to completely distort the entire healthcare market in many ways. But one of them is that they give the same physicians for the same treatment rendered at a hospital. Um, much higher reimbursement than at private practice, and it's destroying private practice. That giant sucking yeah. sound you see, the um, you know, the the end of private practice in America. And look, you know, if the free market would dictate that, I wouldn't have nostalgia about it. But it's it's not the free market um doing that. No. And I don't hear this narrative, this counter narrative on Medicaid. Oh, well, I see. And again, I think when we get into the and you're talking about the whole consolidation piece where government essentially creates an environment where they they um, they unnecessarily restrict supply and, and it causes prices to go up. And then with things like Intella, where all of a sudden healthcare is the one industry where you have to give away goods and services, regardless of your ability, regardless of some a consumer's ability to pay, which which may sound nice and altruistic, but ultimately is is horrible because especially it's when you have an economically sustainable. Problem. What's that? Especially when you have an illegal alien problem. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's not economically sustainable, and and I and I love it when Democrats will say, or when progressives will say, well, you know, we just need to put the economics aside and focus on the people. It's like, no, if you want to focus on people, you have to consider the economics because that's the mechanism by how we actually get goods and services to the people that need it. And so I think I think there's an opportunity here for Republicans to reach out to some of these guys, especially some of these younger Democrats, because they understand that they are getting completely screwed. Uh, through, through programs like, or through uh, health insurance, through college loan programs, we have an opportunity to go to them and say, hey, look, I, I got news for you. You don't trust corporations. Great. Neither do we. But exactly. you shouldn't trust government either, because what gives a corporation the power to actually screw you over is not the marketplace. In the marketplace, the corporation has to serve you. It's when the corporation gets in bed with the government that now all of a sudden they can impose their will on you through regulation, through shortage, through um, uh, through cost mechanisms, through artificial uh, restriction of supply. That's how you do it. So if you really want to protect the little guy, the best thing you can do is make sure the government doesn't have so much power that it gets to manipulate the economy in favor of whoever's got the biggest campaign check. Wow. And that that's the message missing. Our people are always put on defense as if we have to defend the current system uh, because it's socialism versus capitalism. But as Jim DeMint once said, and I, I've stolen his line ever since, what we have in this country in many respects, and it's most evident in healthcare, but you see it with ethanol and many other things like that, is, is not socialism. It's worse. It's venture socialism, where we empower <laughs> a private monopoly. So in other words, like, capitalism is greedy. And I tell people, you're right. Capitalism is greedy. But the good news is that consumers are greedy, too. So you're forced to reach an equilibrium. What venture socialism, socialism does, and this is where you see the worst outcome, is you get the greed of private profit taking, but you don't have the check and balance of organic consumer demand because the consumer is completely cut out um, through artificial monopolies created by the government mandates. You know, like in the case of ethanol, we've been dealing with that a lot here at the conservative conscience. So I bring that up. Sure. We can go on and on. I don't, I'm, I've stolen a lot of your time here. I know we've gone way overboard from what I asked you for, but I want to. No, great, great conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm just so into it because there's so few candidates that you could actually discuss, you know, like policy um, with. And um, <laughs> this is actually very exciting. So two more um, issues and then a political question. Um, immigration in the courts. You know, I started the show mm -hmm. by noting today is a government shutdown that no one's talking about. How we have reached a point where we so do not have a Republican form of government, and I say that with a, cap, a, a lowercase r, Republican, yeah. sure. um, where a federal district judgeship, which is created by Congress, not the Constitution, could go and unilaterally make denizens of aliens, unilater unilaterally steal the sovereignty, the underpinnings of the, of the Declaration of Independence, the ultimate governance by the consent of the governed, that we decide who becomes a part of our society through our immigration law. You know, we talk about how most things need to be local in nature, and they do. But when it comes to immigration, that is the whole of the union. Congress needs to decide. And yet, localities are able to say, screw you, we're doing what we want. Illegal immigrants are able to gain standing in violation to 200 years of settled case law and sue for affirmative benefits, not just not to be deported, but Social Security cards, work permits, violate the national um, private property, basically, it's what it is, and say, you must continue Obama's violation. And I'm going to tell you, Nick, 
even conservatives are tell, telling to me, well, Daniel, this is good. It gives us more time to fight in Congress. What? I mean, we're, we're like <laughs> taking this sitting down. I mean, that is the government shutdown. Well, I think I think part of the problem that I, I have and this I mean, this let's face it, some of this goes all the way back to Marbury versus Madison and Maryland versus McCullough, right? And and this idea of, of the judiciary kind of assuming for itself a um, significant powers that I don't think was originally intended to by the Constitution. But putting that aside for a second, this is also why judge appointments are, are so important, is we, we have members of the judiciary that honestly believe that they're super legislators. And not just super legislators, but they're also super super executives. I mean, that's that's the old saying, right? Tyranny is when you have the legislator, the executive, and the judiciary all in one person. Well, we have judges that are really acting like that. And um, and 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 again, it's it's what happens when you have a judicial philosophy, which essentially states that you know, quote unquote, well, my job is to do justice. Okay, justice according to what? Because justice according to our system of government is an honest interpretation of the law as it was written by the legislature and signed in by the executive, not what you think would be the most favorable outcome for your particular philosophy at the moment. So a, a big problem has to do with the sort of people that we put on the bench. But, you know, again, I think we're getting really, really close to another sort of crisis. And, and I'm not a huge Andrew Jackson fan, don't get me wrong. I love that he got rid of the bank. But, you know, the, what he did to the Cherokee was absolutely atrocious. But it was one of those moments where Andrew Jackson decided that, okay, the Supreme Court has made its decision. Now let's see it enforce it. And That's I don't exactly get how to that Hamilton, Hamilton actually foresaw that. But I just want to interject here. Yeah. There's a big difference there. There the courts were putting a negative on a positive action of an executive to violate fundamental rights. I'm not saying the court should even be the final arbiter there, but at least that's what they're doing. Here oh, yeah, no, cases, the, court got it, the court got it right in that decision. But, 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 but not just did they get it right. Won. Not just did they get it right. It's that it was more in line of their job. They put a negative on an executive positive. What the courts are yeah. doing now is they're saying, you must cough up a marriage license. You must cough up um, have county clerks come yeah, and have 30 days early action. voting. You must issue yeah. visas. They are mandating yeah. executive powers they do not have. Yeah. And I am not seeing anyone in the executive or legislature. I'm working with a couple of House members. Um, my question to you is this. It's not an either or. We don't have to you know, sit and do nothing. If you come up there and you're in the Senate, would you sponsor or co-sponsor legislation to harness Article 3, Section 2 to place regulations and exceptions on the jurisdiction of the federal courts. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would. And, and I think the other thing, too, that, that needs to be understood here, though, is that each branch is also, I mean, theoretically, the way our branches were set up was that each branch was supposed to be protective of its own powers. Bingo. And, and, at, this, and at this point, the executive branch needs to be protective of, of the powers that are assigned to it within the Constitution. Um, likewise, half the problems that we're, we're facing right now is a direct result of nobody paying attention to Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution and realizing that we, we operate off of enumerated powers. Um, so, you know, and again, we can get into the whole issue of how the 16th Amendment, you know, allows the federal government to essentially extort the states with their own money. I mean, we can talk about all of that. But, yeah, it, it, dealing with the immediate situation, we obviously need clarification, and, and that's the role of the legislature. Um, to, to more clearly define that, hey, look, this is not an appropriate role of the judiciary, but we also need an executive. And my gosh, I would have thought Trump would have been willing to protect the power of the executive um, <laughs> that is going to step in and say, no, you're, we're not going to issue these simply because you know this federal you know court um, is now is again and now mandating positive action on the part of the executive branch, and, and that's a very good point. There's a difference between negative action versus positive. Um, 
but yeah, this, this, but so much of this comes down from this this fundamental misunderstanding of what the role of the federal government is in the first place. And because the federal government has its hands on so many things that, quite frankly, it was never intended to have its hands on, it's not dedicating the time, energy, and resources into the things that are no. its responsibility, such as immigration, such as national defense. Um, and, and, that, and that's a big part of the problem. And, but again, one of the ways that we talk about this, it has to be relevant to people in their day-to-day lives. So when, when I, I'm out in Virginia, we have a, a lot of federal workers. We have a lot of military. It's not that we're anti-government, right? We understand the government plays sure. an important role. We just want to stay within its proper constitutional yeah. boundaries and only carry out its legitimate functions. But the way that we can talk about this that's effective in a place like Virginia is saying, look, when we say that we don't think there should be a federal department of education, we're not saying we want less money for education. We're not saying we want less teachers. We're saying, would you rather those teaching jobs exist in Washington, D.C., where they're not doing anything for you, or would you rather those jobs actually exist in the school that you have where, oh, by the way, we have a thousand, close to a thousand teacher shortages in Virginia right now? Because if you kept the money that we were taking from you, you would be able to make those decisions on a local and state level with respect to how your tax revenue should be spent in order to provide your kids with a quality education. But because we're sending to Washington, D.C., and because we have to fund this massive bureaucracy and all this infrastructure to hold the bureaucracy, we have money being peeled off and wasted away that should be in your communities. When we draw that correlation, when we, when we make it clear to people that, no, you don't understand, it sounds like this money would go away you'd have more of it, and you wouldn't have all the federal strings attached. That's a proposition that sounds good to people. It's funny, right after the Virginia, speaking of Virginia, Republicans got shellacked, you know, in the 2015, uh, whatever you want to call them, state elections. And that was the point I mentioned, that Republicans had no narrative to take to Virginia voters and say, hey, you don't like what's going on in Washington. We're going to make localism great again. We're going to empower local communities to make these decisions. And and I I love what you're saying, because I think we're both kind of liberty minded people, but we're not for Mm -hmm. no government. We're for actually, um, you know, like Madison said in Federalist 45, the federal government has few but defined um, things dealing principally on external objects and they got to do them well. And we're seeing that, you know, that basically um, states are reduced to rubble. I mean, they can't set election yeah. law. They can't draw maps. There's nothing they're allowed to do anymore, but they could yeah. thwart federal immigration law. I mean, everything is oh, yeah. flipped on its head, upside down, inside out. Um, you know, just to bring this to the final segment, and I'd love to have you back and discuss more issues, um, hopefully, you know, as this campaign progresses, but you um, served two combat tours in Iraq as a Green Beret, you were in the 82nd Airborne um, before you joined Special Forces. Um, one of the things I'm really struggling with, and a lot of us are, is, you know, there's no Republican narrative on health care. There's, no, there's not much of a Republican narrative on immigration, but Trump has, in some ways, really, you know, turned the corner on that. When it comes to foreign policy, military engagements, the risk versus return matrix, understanding what our interests in, what the hell we're doing, in the Middle East, what is worthwhile, what is not, there is no understanding of a conservative foreign policy. And I know this is a whole long can of worms, but I'd be remiss. And I have a lot of, you know, our audience is very much in tune with these arguments. I just talked about Votel and his comments about the need to protect Iraqi sovereignty uh, last week at a committee hearing. Um, I want to get your thoughts from your experience. You come up there 
what do you feel you could do and what do you think where do you think there would be bipartisan opportunity to write that ship and make article one great again in terms of um just congressional input and what in the world we're doing sure well i mean i think the the thing that there's generally speaking, a good bipartisan support for is our military should be the best trained, best equipped, best financed in the world, right? We, we, I don't think anybody doubts that American, well, I shouldn't say that. No conservatives, and I would even say probably at least a good percentage of Democrats, don't think that the United States gets anywhere from not having um, a significant military force and the ability to project power, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that I am very adamant about, though, is we have a constitutional mechanism for going to war. We have a constitutional mechanism for engaging in combat. We need to use those constitutional mechanisms. They're there for a reason. And I've been very, very, I mean, ever since the War Powers Act, I am I, very skeptical of this process whereby we send troops into harm's way and when everything's going fine, we're all on board and it gets financed in the budget and the whole deal in the moment, things get a little tricky. Now it ends up being this, this brinkmanship game between the executive and the legislature with respect to you know what we're going to do and what we're actually going to finance based off the political fortunes of the war. And our troops are all left in the, in the center. They're, all, they're the ones directly in the crosshairs of this little political game that they play. So my statement has always been, if it is important enough to send men and women into combat to die, then I expect Congress to demonstrate an ounce of the courage that they expect of our men and women in uniform and actually follow the constitutional mechanism, declare war, or go through letters of mark and reprisal. I mean, I, I know that's something we're not really used to in, in the political vernacular anymore, but there are constitutional mechanisms which are there to ensure that we don't get mired in these long wars where there's this constant battle between the executive and the legislature. Um, and, and again, our men and women are, are caught in the middle. So finance the military, fund the military appropriately, make sure it's, it's uh, preeminent in the world. If you have to send it overseas or get sent in a conflict, use the constitutional mechanisms. Don't cut corners. And then the other thing I would say is this. We need to uh, – let me tell you a quick story. I, I was in Iraq on my second tour in 2008, and uh, Green Berets work by through and with the local population, right? We work in 12-man teams, and a 12-man team, you know, it could be responsible for training and, and working with everywhere from, you know, 50 to 500 indigenous forces. When we were over there, we primarily worked with Iraqi regular army, um, uh, Iraqi law enforcement, and then some of the Iraqi militias that we had set up. And I'm, I'm about to, we're rotating out, we're on our last thing, like literally we've got our bags packed and the other team has, has moved into the house and we're transferring out. And my captain looks at me and he goes, Nick, you need to put more in the sit rep. I said, well, sir, we, I've already put in everything that we've done in the sit rep. There's, there's really nothing else to report. He's, no, I want you to put in more. And so me being a little bit of a smart ass, I, I wrote in there because he used to always check the sit rep before it went out. And so I put in something occasionally that he would catch. And I put in there, I said, I have a quick question for everybody at Special Operations Task Force North. Why are we the only military in the world from a, a federalized constitutional republic with a free market economic system that topples um, centrally planned economic dictatorships and sets up parliamentary democracies with centrally planned economies? <laughs> Why does this make sense? And he forgot to check it before it went to Special Operations Task Force North. Good news is I was very friendly with the colonel. He's a great guy. And, you know, he pretty much gave me a slap on the wrist and said, don't do that again. <laughs> but the question remains, right? What is the best way to engage when we determine that there is a, a strategic U.S. interest, when there is a clear and present danger to United States security issues? What's the best way to engage? I, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I was a Green Beret and I'm, I'm biased toward it, but 
it was amazing how much further I think we got when the whole method of foreign engagement was by, through, and with. We didn't, you know, you shouldn't go into an environment, get there, and then two years down the road go, okay, well, where's the Iraqi Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> you, you find out who the Iraqi Thomas Jefferson is before you ever commit the level of truth. And, and what if they don't Iraq. exist? And if they don't exist, then that's a good indicator of maybe we shouldn't be here. And, 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 and that's, that's where I'm headed with this. I mean, you, you've given a lot yeah. of good philosophical underpinnings here, which I think a lot of people need to hear. But there is a very imminent problem, and nobody in either party wants to speak to it aggressively, and that is the, what we're doing in Syria has transmogrified into basically taking out Assad, and Votel, the CENTCOM mm-hmm. commander, said at a committee hearing uh, last week that, well, the, because we're there, you know, it was protecting Iraqi sovereignty, I guess he means that was covered under the 203 AUMF, the 2003 yeah. AUMF, and therefore, we're in Syria. Um, there's like a five-way civil war, and we don't understand what exactly we're doing there. Afghanistan, Trump, against his better instincts, and he said so, um, he's doubling down on it, having a surge. But it's not a matter of, well, let's take Afghanistan. It's not a matter of who's a Thomas Jefferson. It's what is Afghanistan? It's 21 tribes. Yeah. It's what are we doing? And, and, and I'm just going to end with this. You, you talked about funding the military. We, we talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago during the omnibus bill. There's been a very big problem. It's not just that this is killing our national security. It's not just that this is depleting our resources and our resolve to deal with those that actually do threaten us and can threaten us with ICBMs and nukes like Iran and North Korea. It's that it's killing our domestic policy, too, because the, the linchpin to why Republicans were strong armed into you know, being convinced to you know, a lot of good guys even to vote for this budget busting bill um, and increased non-defense spending as well. With military we, we got, yeah, we got to fund the military. But as I pointed yeah. out at the time, so much of our so-called military spending has been diverted up to $4 trillion over 15 years, according to the Brown University study, because it's not just – it's OCO, it's base defense being depleted, and it's all the VA costs of oh, yeah. thousands of people blown up we're, and injured. We're, we're, putting, we're, putting war, we're putting wars on the credit card. And, 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 but, and, but with and, no understanding of what we're even – and they're not even wars. Yeah, they're, what we're even there for. They're social operations. They're urban renewal for Baghdad and Kabul. Baghdad yeah. – and, and I know this must be a, you know, kind of a sore point for someone like you who risked your life for this. But the Baghdad government that we're now trying to protect its sovereignty is literally a puppet of the IRGC. Soleimani is running, is running their military operations from Iran. Um, they're an ally of Iran. Uh, you know, that's what we invest in. Afghanistan, we're doing this. And then now, you know, we have no resolve anymore to deal with the, the real threats because we're war wary. And nobody wants to address this. I, I just. No, no. It's, so it's a it's a huge. I mean, bottom line is that, you know, someone was asking me, today, like, what, what would what would your strategy be for Afghanistan? I'm like, well, quite frankly, it'd be to leave. You know, what? Why are we after it, 17 again, if, if our, years? Yeah, it would be it would be to leave because I just I cannot find a good strategic reason why one more American should die in Afghanistan. I just I can't. And if that's the result, well, then then they should be pulled out. Um, so, again, I, I tend to be I, I'm not a, I'm obviously not an isolationist. Right. But I tend to be more non-interventionist. And, and the reason why is because when you start looking at some of these problems and you start you start researching the history of the region, it's incredibly arrogant for us to think that we're just going to be able to waltz in there with superior military power and, and fix everything. And it's not because we can't beat their militaries. We can destroy their militaries. That's not a problem. In a couple of days. It's the idea. 
Yeah, it's the idea that they'll just wait for you to they'll wait for you to leave, <laughs> and then they're going to go right back to what they're doing before. So it, it, when we look at our national security strategy, and when we look at if we see a particular area, well, first of all, can I just say this too? The best way to maintain good relationships with the rest of the world is trade. Right. That, that if you really want to maintain good relations, you need more trade. You need more cultural and economic exchange, not between governments, but between peoples in various nations. That's how you get. That's how you foster better relationships across the world. Okay. When we're talking about military intervention, it really again it needs to be directly tied toward. Okay. What are we trying to achieve? What is the strategic, um, you know, uh, you know, national security interest? And, and, I'm not, and, I'm not, and I don't use that term flippantly, right? It better be something significant where the, United, the sovereignty of the United States, exactly. uh, American citizens are at risk. Yeah. What, okay, what is the appropriate way? What are we trying? Are we trying to prevent something? Are we trying exactly. to prevent someone words, from blocking the Suez Canal, right? What is, what is, is, is it Is there any tribe in Afghanistan that could get ICBMs, yeah. nukes, um, an army, a navy, or an air force that could come here and hurt yeah. us? Well, no, it's a problem yeah. through immigration. So what do we do? We get involved in a 21-way Islamic civil war. Then we feel guilty yeah. about it. Then we bring in even more immigration from there. Yeah. And then we, yeah. we put our boots on their ground, their boots on our ground. And then we say, well, well if and, we don't fight them there, they'll come here, but we bring them here. Yeah, well, and, and let's and let's look at it, let's look at this honestly. If you look at the opening days of Iraq and Afghanistan, what I found so fascinating is that the original plans. Uh, I mean, in Iraq, well, we or excuse me, Afghanistan, early days, you had you know an, an unknown number of CIA agents running around, and then you had about three to five hundred Green Berets. Right, run around the countryside, and that was what it took to, to topple the Taliban, right? Air support, sure. that, and, and we, we got in there. And then all of a sudden it was this mass surge of U.S. forces because we had to rebuild the country and we had to maintain yeah. all of the security. And you saw something similar in Iraq. And, and personally, I don't give the surge as much credit for Iraq turning yes. around in the, in the <laughs> 07 time frame. I don't give the, the surge as much the, credit that's as the I gospel. do the sons of Iraq program. It, by the way, that's yeah. the gospel I, of Republican talking points, that it was the yeah. surge and Obama messed it up, but they don't understand there were sleeping dogs lying there. We would have well, always think, had that problem because of the Sunni-Shia rubber band effect, no? Yeah. Well, and, and I think I think the other thing to look at, too, is obviously with Iran right there, you know, heavily manipulating, you know, the, the political situation. But the thing that started to turn it around with respect to al-Qaeda was we started to set up the Sawa program, we call the Sons of Iraq, where you actually had local militias that they didn't like al-Qaeda. These were foreigners coming into their country. So we armed them and, you know, they took care of their own communities. Um, sure. But, sure. But, but again, but again there, there it, always, the, the problem there is that it was always bound to fail um, unless we would have taken oh, out yeah, Iran no, no, no. first, so under, because because the understand what machines. I'm saying. Yeah, understand what I'm saying. I'm I'm not suggesting okay we okay see that was what would have fixed it. It's like no, again we should have identified that there were going to be long term problems no matter how we cut that no matter how we slice this because there were significant regional differences. There there were um, there were there were obviously cultural problems that had been. I had one friend of mine come up to me. He goes, he was an interpreter, and he's actually in the United States now. He's a great guy, and he goes, Nick, you know. The problem with you Americans is that you honestly believe that if you would have just done something a little better, there wouldn't have been all this sectarian violence in Iraq. He goes, I have news for you. There was going to be this sectarian violence in Iraq. Right. These are old scores that couldn't have been. These are old scores that were never settled because, you know, Saddam basically had an iron fist down on everyone. But it was always bubbling there on the surface. Wow. And he's absolutely right. He was absolutely right. 
So that's the sort of thing that we need to be looking into. And in a lot of these situations where, um, you know, we obviously in 9-11, there needed to be a response. Sure. I think, I think that response could have been, been, it could have been far more targeted. It didn't need to require a massive nation building effort. Um, but again, because, so we we're, we're not we're yeah. not hurting them. We're hurting ourselves. I mean, it reminds me of yes. Gus Farrat got frustrated when he was when he was the the you know Washington quarterback. I forgot what the play was, and he went and headbutted himself and got a concussion. That's what it reminds us. Yeah. It, it was it was painful that 19 people with box cutters were able to do that, but it was stupid immigration policies at its heart. I mean, you, you, yeah, you have to have a strong foreign policy, but we put that on the back burner. We doubled, tripled immigration from the Middle East. We stepped on the gas pedal. We didn't deal with the domestic problems with the Muslim Brotherhood and Enwar Al-Awlaki types that actually met with the hijackers and these, these cells that we had in our country. And instead, we just tried to own Afghanistan's dumpster fire rather than maybe just retaliating and just bombing, killing some people and then leaving, which we're able to do very well, strike and maneuver. Um, and I, I think a lot of people appreciate your comments because I would suggest many people, most conservatives, I mean, most non-conservatives are neither, neither Bill Crystal nor Ron Paul. And I like Ron Paul on a lot of issues. Um, I you do know, too. I'm yeah. certainly not a Ron right. Paul guy. I mean, I'm pro-Israel. I'm strong on Iran, strong on North Korea. But I'm giving the hawkish case, and I think you are as well, the hawkish case against this. I love war, so to speak. I love killing <laughs> the bad guys. What we're doing is not war. We're killing ourselves for nothing. Well, and I, I think, you know, let me, let me throw up one example that I, I like to give people as well. Like, okay, let's say you actually have determined that a significant military intervention is, is necessary. Look at how the French engaged in the United States when we broke away from England, right? It, it wasn't this automatic commitment to, you know, come over here and, and take over the war on our behalf and then set up a country and then allow us to, you know, work things out in Philadelphia while French troops garrison the entire... That wasn't it. it there was... The, the Americans had to demonstrate that there was, you know, strong, I mean, for lack of a better term, strong grassroots support. They had to have organic leaders. They had to have an organic plan with what they wanted to accomplish. That plan had to fall within the strategic interests of France at the time, right? They didn't get involved until we demonstrated that we could actually win battles on our own. And then it was about, you know, slowly providing resources in order to, you know, get us to where we needed to be in order to close the deal. And and even then there was there was even then there was still problems right because we had bad relationships with France not long after why well because our own interests very soon after the revolution our own interests conflicted with that of France so we need to be very very cognizant of the fact that even when this is done perfectly there there are a number of political considerations regional considerations historical considerations cultural considerations that can screw up the best laid plans of of mice and men. So that's why you, you, you be very, very tempered in your response. And again, the, one of the reasons why I love the way that Special Forces operates is that if you want to talk about sending people in that can actually get a good bearing on what's going on on the ground, and that can actually help develop an organic solution to a problem, because that's really what we're talking about here. America, we, in recent military history, we love to come in and impose an American solution. And, and we hold up Germany and Japan as, as in demonstrations of that working. But we're, we're operating in a very, very different paradigm right now. And in those areas where it may be appropriate to intervene, I would say that the proper, appropriate level of intervention is when we get in there and we find local support 
and we determine whether or not they've reached a level of maturity to be able to develop an organic solution within their own country. Because when it comes to just destroying another country's military, I'm sorry, that's just not a big problem for us. We're very good at that. Of course. Uh, I'm all for that in a vacuum. But, you know, a a lot of, um, you know, and and I have this debate even with my boss, Mark Levin. Um, Fundamentally, we're on the same side, but I think, you know, they they view some of what we're saying sometimes, oh, it's code pink or it's associated somehow with the left or maybe the kind of hardcore Cato libertarian types. And like, no, this is the hawkish case. I love the videos where we just bomb the hell out of Assad stuff. But the problem is, I think we all know where this is headed, and it's all because we don't have yeah. this congressional mandated constitutional authorization where, okay, you get rid of him. Um, now what? Now we're going well, to own it. I know this is going to sound, I know this is going to sound, you know, and again, people generally expect you're a Republican, you're a veteran, you're a combat veteran, you must be a hawk. It's like <laughs> when we declare war, and, it, and, it's a, and it's a justifiable war, absolutely. I'm the most hawkish guy out there, right? But. I also know what war costs, and I don't take it lightly. And I don't like the idea that we've gotten we've gotten sucked into all of these different foreign entanglements. You know, the Washington warned us about. That doesn't make you hawkish. That makes you an idiot. Right? <laughs> at some point, at some point, we are being rope-a-doped into every other little foreign conflict out there uh, because of some sort of political consideration or, or whatever it is. But if, if we would just take back, take a deep breath and say, you know what, is this really our fight? I think nine times out of ten right now, we'd probably be saying, <laughs> yeah, no, it's really not. It's Talk really about not. being idiots, not hawks. We're fighting on behalf of the same Shia militias that blew up your colleagues, some estimates over a thousand from their modified IEDs. Um, yeah. To fight the Kurds now, <laughs> you talk yeah, about you know people mind boggling. Mind boggling. I mean, it, it, is that hawkish to side with the Iranians against the Kurds? I mean, it is just oh god, it, it, it's like if there, if there was if there was one group if there was one group in Iraq that pretty much stood with us no matter what, even when we kind of dealt them a bad hand, it was the Kurds, right? If it was. If there was one group over there that was all about maintaining their own security in order to get in greater economic investment, was incredibly friendly to the United States, it was the Kurds. And now for some reason, you know, just like you said, we're we're putting them in once again another bad position. We're going to create bad feelings here that are going to last decades. All right. So, Nick, um, I, you yeah. know, I, I have I mean, we've gone more than double overtime here, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, a testament to, to just, you know, I, this is just music to the ears, I would imagine, of many of our listeners. Um, I, I would love to have you on again just to talk about some of these issues, talk about just special ops in general and what we're doing to them and the stress we're putting on them and different things. I mean, there's there's just so much to talk about. Um, what is your campaign website? So my campaign website is nickforsenate.com. That's the number four. Um, so, yeah, definitely check out our website. And then obviously uh, we're very active on Facebook and uh, Twitter and and. Uh, you know, other social media outlets, um, we, we update them daily. So please uh, check us out. And uh, we'll be having a lot more videos coming up here shortly on, on individual policy positions. Um, and again, we'd love to get feedback. And if anybody would like to uh, support us in, in any way, we, we've got a great campaign team, a great volunteer network, and we're, we're always looking for people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, folks, this is the type of conversation I would normally do privately, but I figured I just recorded. And oh my gosh, I mean, this is a uh... This is pretty amazing. By now, our people are probably thinking, all right, this is a guy that kind of shares our values. But let me end with this question. 
I, I even got this comment on, on social media when I, uh, when I announced he'd be on the show. Um, man, couldn't this guy move to West Virginia or Montana or Missouri or one of the states um, we could be competitive in? I mean, given that this looks, like, looks to be a pretty bad year because the Republicans have no narrative, um, Virginia, demographics, everything, um, how in the world do you expect to win a general election? So I'm, I'm a, you said it. I'm a Liberty Republican. And the thing with Liberty Republicans is that bottom line is we don't have a whole lot of power within the Republican Party right now. But if you're going to change that, you got to take some risks. And right now in Virginia, we have, and for those of us who live here and are involved in politics, you see it, but there's a unique opportunity to really take over the messaging and, and put it in a posture that I think is going to be great for the Republican Party going forward. And more importantly, I think it's going to be great for the country. And it's going to set us up to actually change the way that younger voters view Republicans, because right now, Republicans, quite frankly, are viewed as the cronyists. And we bear some responsibility for that interpretation. But if we can go back and be, once again become the party of individual liberty, the party that believes in empowering people, the party that doesn't want to control your life, that doesn't want to make decisions for you, that wants to put you fully in charge of your life and protect your liberty and property, provide you equal justice before the law as you pursue happiness in accordance with your definition of it. If we can be that party again, we can once again change because we have a generational dynamic taking place right now where millennials and Gen Xers are coming in and they are looking, they are looking at us really for the first time. And there's a lot of caricatures of us out there. But if liberty minded Republicans are not wanting to step up in those areas where it seems like a complete uphill battle, if we're not wanting to step up in that, then we don't deserve to leave. Well, so this is the time to step up. This is the time to actually talk about our message and our, and what our policies are and where they stem from in a philosophical standpoint that ultimately this is about, one philosophy wants to control the individual. We want to empower the individual through individual liberty. Well, folks, and when we, can, when we can explain that first and then the policies, and we can explain how those policies achieve that, that's an opportunity for the Republican Party going forward. And that is the narrative we need in the United States Senate with uh, 2.4 conservatives there. So we wish you well, Nick. Um, thanks for so much generosity of your time. Um, again, Nick4Senate.com is the website. Uh, we'll link to his Twitter um, and social pages on our show notes as well. Um, thanks for joining us today, Nick. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Nick Friedis, current delegate for Virginia. Well, he's a member of the House of Delegates, and he's running for Senate in the state of Virginia. And look, we're, we'll see what happens. We're going to watch this race really, really carefully. Send me your feedback, what you would like to be asked or what you want to be asked of the candidates. Um, I know a lot of you have strong feelings about that and who you want to have on the show next. We have a couple people we're looking at and uh, we are way over time. It's one of our longest podcasts. So I got to let you guys go. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience. Conservative conscience.